Kia ora, welcome to this episode in Season 3 of Recovering. I'm Frank Ritchie, Church Minister, Chaplain and Radio Broadcaster. Recovering is a Media Chaplaincy New Zealand podcast highlighting the excellent work of Aotearoa New Zealand journalists. In each episode, I sit down with a leading journalist to discuss the story that's had the biggest impact on them both personally and professionally. The settlers and their governor have no intention of sharing power with a Māori king. They want to crush what the fledgling British colony sees as a rebellion. In this episode, I sat down with Cameron Bennett, a legend of New Zealand journalism currently working as an associate producer on Te Ao with Moana for Whakata Māori. Cameron's career spans decades, with many of us being extremely familiar with him due to his long tenure with TVNZ and his involvement in high-profile stories, particularly armed conflict in various parts of the world. Cameron has been mentioned as an inspiration by a number of journalists who have appeared on this podcast. Governor Gray attempted to justify the unjustifiable, really, through assembling a dodgy dossier of, of evidence that supposedly incriminated Tainui, but in fact did no such thing. In this episode of Recovering, Cameron and I chat about his work on RNZ series that dives into the New Zealand Wars, a significant piece of Aotearoa New Zealand history that remains little known in some sectors of our society. To sit and watch him get animated about his current involvement with telling stories of our nation was personally inspiring. Cameron, it's a pleasure having you in the studio, and it's a pleasure because I'm a great admirer of your work, but in three seasons of recovering now, there are a couple of journalists who get mentioned regularly by other journalists as inspirations, and you are one of them, so it is an honour to have you sitting here. Well, that's very flattering. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> you've, you've had a long, distinguished career in journalism in New Zealand, well-known on our TV screens after decades with uh, TVNZ. You've made a shift which we're going to get into, but one of the early points in your career is an interview that lives uh, famously, in some people's minds, in infamy in uh, New Zealand media circles, the walkout of Dennis Connor on the very first episode of Holmes. Tell us about the part that you played in that. Right, well, I, lo- I like to think of it as famous rather than infamous. <laughs> it's not a point of infamy, I don't think, no, but don't it was think so. a, a very remarkable moment in TV history. My uh, engagement there was a small team of us brought together to create this program around one radio personality, Paul Holmes. And the mission statement was along the lines of accessible, digestible, short form current affairs for primetime TV, centered around a serious personality a guy who had the freedom to express himself and be himself, et cetera, et cetera, that being Paul Holmes, who, as we all know, is a remarkable uh, figure in New Zealand broadcasting. And so the, the, the opening show was coming. We wanted to have a king hit of a, an opening show, of course. There was a lot of buzz around it. We didn't actually have a story for it. We had other, we had other stories, but not that real king hit for Paul. And... Anyway, Dennis Connor was in town with the America's Cup uh, and had already made a name for himself by um, insulting 
one of New Zealand's premier yacht makers, etc. So there'd been this popular outrage around this one. How dare he? And here was this you know, this remarkable veteran America's Cup sailor weighing and not frightened to say anything at all. And we thought, what about Dennis Connor? And anyway, I was given the job. I think I might have been part of that. I was part of that conversation too about the idea. And uh, the weigh-in was Dennis Connor was visiting. He was promoting a board game, and literally a game. And we got access, or I got access via his agent to as long as we discussed the board game at some point, which we did, actually, but um, in passing. <laughs> mm. uh, and then he arrived. Going back on it slightly, too, if I recall, he arrived, pulled up at TVNZ. I was there to greet him at the door. We had cameras on standby because this was going to be provocative. And if he was going to walk, we were going to film it. He... Um, had the look of someone, you know, he, I don't know if he'd been at the bar early or whatever, but um, he was kind of relaxed. And in he came, well, then all hell broke loose. And sure enough, he stormed off rather theatrically. I mean, I think in retrospect, one of the things I've said about this too is that, I mean, we were startled and amazed and thrilled. But this was a man, a veteran of real challenges in life, America's Cup racing. This was water off a duck's back. Yeah. And it, it marks, in my mind, and I think probably the reaction of the newsroom at the time based on interviews that I, I've read, it marks a shift in news in New Zealand and journalism in New Zealand. What what shift occurred there in your mind? Well, the major shift was there was universal outrage over the interview at us. Mm. And not just from newspapers and commentators on the outside, but within the newsroom itself. It was hostile all round. There was no support for what we did, except for the management that stayed with it. But boy, what a rocky start. Yeah, it's massive. It's massive. And then your career just moves from there into some of the biggest stories our world has seen. Conflict zones, I think 9-11. There's all the stuff that uh, in 60 minutes. Uh, when you look back on your career, what are some highlights before we get into the main topic that you want to talk about? I mean, one of the interesting things for me is that conflict and war really has been a defining part of a lot of my career. I was the least person to expect that. I didn't go hunting for it. It um, it came my way. How did that happen? Well, um, I started off in newspapers. I was a newspaper journalist. And then I went backpacking, traveling around the world and going rough and loved it. Loved adventure, loved travel and got into television in the UK and arrived back to New Zealand to, to try and develop it as a, as a bit of a career. And along the way, uh, TVNZ set up a, a, a Europe bureau based in the UK, and a reporter called Liam Giori was the first one who was selected for that post, and I applied next time around and, and got it. But it seemed to me that there wasn't much left going on after his outing. He had had the good stuff, the fall of the Soviet Union, the Berlin Wall, not much left for me. So on one level, it was exciting. On another, it was like, damn it, I've missed the action. Mm. Mm. Of course, it turned out to be anything but. 
was a roller coaster of events that took us through uh, Europe, the Middle East, Africa. Incredible. Did it change how you saw the world? Getting involved in some of uh, some of the darkest stuff. I mean, conflict is some of the hardest hardest stuff to see play out. I would imagine. Did it shift your view of the world? Oh, absolutely. I mean, um, for someone like myself with no military background at all um, or experience, to be actually around live fire and seeing the consequences of that in terms of injuries um, and trauma uh, was deeply affecting for me. Uh, There's a story I tell. uh, One time we went into Mogadishu for Operation Restore Hope in 1994 when the Americans landed on the beaches of Mogadishu and, quote, Mark, uh, liberated Somalia. Well, we were there. We were down on the beach. We were covering all of that. And we were in Mogadishu in the days before the actual arrival. So when the, the place was like a scene out of Mad Max. And at the end of it, after all this kind of mayhem and and craziness, um, I arrived back and my wife had organized uh, tickets to a Santana concert in the UK, which I... I had to walk out. I couldn't. I couldn't take the noise. Mm-hmm. That's hard, eh? And uh, this this is back in a time where the format still really, and the format within conflict is is relatively new. Like it hadn't been around for a very long time. So how to cope with that as human beings, and how you prepare yourself for that, how you process it afterwards, none of that. None of that stuff would have been in place. No. Whereas now, you would hope people being sent into conflict have some sort of conflict training. They're, they're going through dangerous situations training. Uh, and then when they come back, hopefully there's some stuff to help process it. But you didn't have any of that. My first trip to the uh, Bosnian Civil War, covering that, my first experience of war, we didn't even have flak jackets. Yeah. We had no, we had nothing. What did you imagine when you went in? No training for how to deal with it. You land on the ground... What do you do? The biggest fear was failing to deliver a story, funnily enough. Yeah. It was like uh, when we arrived in Sarajevo that first time when the airport was under mortar fire and uh, we'd hitchhiked in a cameraman and me on a Hercules. And we're at the airport, which is like being at the airport at Mangari, and you have to get to the CBD and you've got no transport and there's a lot of shooting going on. Uh, now what? And then you sort of fall back on your wits and whatever else and bluff your way in. Yeah, and then processing afterwards. So you mentioned the Santana concert, but how did that processing occur for you? So you did just end up a drunk mess begging somewhere. No, but uh, there was some drink involved. Um, When you're doing these jobs, I think you're so absorbed doing them, the camera lens gives you an element of distance. And this process that you've got to follow that allows you to function as opposed to just being observing and being overwhelmed. Uh, I think, yeah, the getting back is when it hits you hard. And I remember um, one time you were coming back from our first trip to the Bosnian War, which was a surreal experience for us and frightening. A cameraman, I phoned up the cameraman in London just to see how he was doing the next day because I was pacing around, didn't know what to do with myself. He was having his first bourbon at about 10 in the morning. He said, I just don't know what to do with myself. I don't know what to do. So it does have profound impacts in that sense. But the can gets kicked down the road because there's another story coming up. Mm. There's another event. Does it come out at some point? 
I think it does. Yeah. Um, and I think it um, comes out in different ways for different people. I mean, I know there's sort of uh, trauma counseling uh, for people now. There wasn't for us. But I think, yeah, it can it can come out in the way that anyone that's been exposed in that way can. You can mood swings or behaviorally um, or it's an emotional experience. Mm. Yeah. I don't know how much you would have reflected on this, but in this podcast, we've now sat down with some well-known New Zealand journalists who have reported in conflict and they've talked about their experiences and processing it. For you, has there been any reflection on the fact that you're one of the guys who set the scene for that in New Zealand? These people are coming in your wake, essentially. Yeah, I mean, I suppose I reflect on it, but I'm I'm thrilled that they do, and I'm I'm pleased that although there's been a drop off, that broadcasters and news outlets still step out and go places, mm. even though it's become more and more difficult with insurances and a reluctance on the part of news organizations. But if you're going to share the human experience of other people with folks back home, there's only one way to do it. I sort of feel that what's interesting is the technology's changed a lot. We, of course, you know, in war zones were literally on our own. There was no cell phones. There was no... Uh, there was no way to actually know exactly where you were until you could get to a satellite phone somewhere. Now there's a lot more, but the demands are greater now too for people to be instantly instantly delivering, which is on one level fantastic, but on another can be very difficult if someone's tethered to a live post somewhere and they're doing updates on a regular basis for online, for broadcast, for whatever – it's difficult to just kind of get out in there and soak in what's actually happening around you. Mm, that's a really good point. Back then then, for those who are younger who might be listening and who don't imagine how it works other than having the live material and the connection to the internet, when you did a story, how did that get its way back? On those days, we shot on beta tapes. Yeah which are big, for your listeners who don't know, which were, were quite big cassette tapes, a bit about like the size of a VHS, but bigger. And that went at a camera. It's a heavy unit. Our editing was done on quite heavy units, which we had to use sort of portably. And the editing also was linear. It's not like digital. So you can't just say, oh, look, I'll tell you what, we'll take that little part from further down the timeline and move it up here. We'll move that around, rejig. Mm, I don't like that. We'll change this. You almost start and, and finish and to a deadline, and there it was, for better or for worse. Um, and sometimes it was a bit of both. But physically, your edited tape had to be taken to a satellite playout point where it's pushed into a cassette playing machine, bounced to a satellite, down again to another one, up, down, several times before it hit New Zealand. And we were always running up against the deadlines with this, just the logistics. Again, talking about Sarajevo, where, which was the, one of the scariest, a cameraman and I were, we were actually sleeping on the floor of a kind of an old post office building, which was on a, a famous stretch of road they called Sniper's Alley. And um, there were other broadcasters there, but I think we were among the poorest in terms of equipment and facilities and backup, although there was one Greek journalist there who was a TV journalist who only carried a cassette, no camera, and would get other people to film for it. But anyway, 
this case, we'd been editing in the night, Richard and I. Woke up the next morning, there'd been quite a lot of shooting and, and mortar fire in the area. And our time was ticking where we had to get down to our playout point, which was a few hundred metres down the road at another building. We waited for a lull in the fire and looked at each other and said, well, are we going to do this? And we said, let's do it, man, let's do it. So we, we, we did and sprinted our way down this, this road, scared. And arrived, and then I made my way to the live shot position and said to Richard, will you take the cassette down to the playout station? We'll get going. He said, well, you've got the cassette. I said, no, no, you've got the cassette. And we'd left without the cassette. Oh. <laughs> so we were able, thankfully, to talk someone into driving us back to get it on time. So it was a real sweaty experience. Man. So, just, I mean, stepping out of the building, were there a few deep breaths before you stepped down and did the run? Yeah. For anyone that hasn't experienced it, gunfire and uh, explosions are very, very loud. And you don't get that on the TV. Mm. In real real life, they are very, very loud, which is frightening as hell when you're not used to it. How the hell do you come back and just do the dishes? <laughs> <laughs> I was very fortunate. My wife, Phil, was uh, totally committed mm. to what I was doing you as well. And we had two young children, two young boys. If she hadn't supported me in that, then I I, I couldn't have done it. Yeah, Cameron, I'm just going to say, you're a legend. You're, you're <laughs> I a don't legend. think so. <laughs> I know you won't, but you're a legend. You've paved the way for a whole lot of uh, very important storytelling in New Zealand. There's so many different forms of journalism, mm. thankfully, and so many different people are very good at different elements. For me, it was the human connection, always the human connection. That's what television allowed. And to script around, to somehow have have people trust you with their experience, their story, and for you to somehow do your best to translate that and bring it back so that folks at home could empathize, could relate. For me, that was the what I was about and what I was trying to do. Yeah, which will almost bridge us to what we're going to talk about. So we'll get there soon. There's a unique element here that I haven't discussed with other television journalists that I've had on. Television relies on the pictures. So it doesn't matter how good you are at telling the story. You need those pictures. So the camera person, therefore, is going to be really important in the mix. What's the relationship like between you and the camera person? Oh, it's very important. There's got to be the understanding. But also remember that the the reporter is the director as well, or should be. They should have a vision. There should be a vision for what's coming on. And the camera operator intuitively should be following and adding to that, bringing in other dynamics. So that the lovely thing about pictures is that when you script two pictures, you're not describing what you're seeing in the picture. You're layering another understanding on that. It's another dimension, which is is what I love about the form of TV storytelling is that you have audio, vision and audio, which are two profound dynamics, obviously, and and dabs of voiceover mm. that add other dimensions to that. That's that's what one's trying to achieve. I love how animated you are as you talk about that. You can see you visualizing it and it's coming out and how you're using your hands. When you came to the end of the time with TVNZ, that's a massive shift. How did that feel? Look, it was hard. Mm. Um, 
I'd been a correspondent on Sunday since its inception. I'd been presenting the show as well for, I don't know, was five or ten years. I can't remember the full duration of the time. And it was a family. So I did find it hard, and I was a bit lost at the end of it. What happened is that everyone talks about in these kind of situations is that there's another world out there that you discover, and it can re-energize, reorient your journey. And so I've been privileged to have that opportunity. Well, let's talk about that, because you're not on our screens as much, but you are well and truly involved in some extremely important storytelling that's going on in Aotearoa, New Zealand at the moment, as our identity continues to develop and shift as a nation. So talk us about what you've moved into. Well, I've been embraced into the world of Te Ao Māori. How did that happen? Which is um, uh, has been an amazing experience. How it happened was not because I was looking for it, but the TVNZ-based show or the uh, Pango production show called Marae got in touch and said, could I help out with some story producing? No, oh, okay. And I joined there. And and since then, I've been working for the last two years with uh, Moana Maniaporto on her show, Tell with Moana, and you've spoken to her, of course. I use the term privilege because, you know, it's been an, an absolutely wonderful experience on lots of levels that I've been, you know, the, the generosity of it, the engagement of me, a Pākehā, into that world, the trust, the respect for experience and the willingness to go with a bit of what I might have to say. And it's really been a rejuvenating experience at a personal level, a professional level, I mean. Mm. It's been an astonishing exciting development of my career. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to talking about this and unpacking this because I am a Pākehā male. We're both Pākehā male sitting here having this discussion. And I have come to realise, as someone who's always been sympathetic, but I've come to realise there's this whole other world that I have absolutely no control in, where I am less than a student. I was at a Pōwhiri yesterday at a marae for a group of uh, journalist cadets. And uh, sitting in there with little awareness of what's going on, I'm not in control. And I, I'm at the mercy of, of other people. When you first stepped into this world, what was that experience like for you? Because it's a very different world. Very different. Daunting. You and me both on that count. My knowledge and experience was incredibly limited. Uh, I put it this way that I'd gone from the outside looking in to the inside looking out. But it was the welcoming nature of it and the trust that was extended towards me, which I found very humbling and uh, was was grateful for. You know, I was embraced and have learned as I've gone. My language skills are not great, but I've learned a lot more about tikanga Māori, which has been uh, a fantastic thing. Which I think is, uh, to a degree, for us Pākehā, almost a more important step than getting the language because there's a whole different worldview in play. There's a whole different lens for seeing the world, and that's what we need to get. Now, it's interesting you say we need to get it. Why do you think we need to get it? As I think about how I move through the world, there's a bunch of assumptions that I have for how the world operates. So if I'm going to sit down with someone who is of a different culture, 
there's an element of listening that goes on where I'm going to be better served and they're going to be better served if I can get to a point where to a degree, as far as I can, I understand that lens and how they're moving through the world. Because Marty already know how I move through the world and how us Pākehā move through the world. They've had to take that on. But the same has not gone the other way. Exactly right. Yeah. So I think for a Pākehā, for me, I say, uh, I express it like that because I think there's a need for us to understand tikanga and understand that lens and how they're moving through the world. I agree with you entirely on that, Frank. But it's not just a need. I would introduce the idea of a desire to. I like that. We're partners together in this land Mm. and an openness to our partners is going to make for a greater understanding and critically, 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 a greater empathy as we move ahead with our policy making, with our personal viewpoints and prejudices and so forth. I think that's so very, very important for us. Yeah, I like that word desire. For me, that probably sparked in reading Vincent O'Malley's Great War for New Zealand. I think when I read that, I moved from someone who was sympathetic and interested to someone who had that desire because I realized that there was was just so much out of my depth. And there were things playing out in my homeland of the Waikato and places that I'd been around my whole life where there's this other world, this other story, this history that I was completely unaware of and my worldview shifted, which brings us to what it is that you actually want to talk about in terms of a story that's had a big impact on you and is having a big impact on you. Absolutely. The story, stories that are mattering to me in an awful large way at the moment are the New Zealand wars, the very thing you're talking about. And Mihi uh, Ngārangi Forbes and Annabel Lee Mather uh, brought me in to direct and write a series that we've been doing called The Stories Of. So we've done documentaries for RNZ Online on Rua Peka Peka, Tainui, Waitara, and most recently Wairo in the South Island. It's been a profoundly wonderful experience for me. Like you, I knew nothing of this, was taught nothing of it of what was called the Maori Wars back then at school, had no knowledge. And these documentaries use Vincent O'Malley as a linchpin historian, but the dimension that really sets them apart for me is that we also use iwi historians. Mm. So the oral histories of the regions uh, contribute to this and enrich in the story. And the other critical element, I think, of these documentaries that I, I hope people get the opportunity to, to see and that schools get to use is that they're called stories of. It's not the history of, it's stories of, because history is forever changing and being re- reinterpreted. So, yeah, it's been a fascinating experience for me uh, and I think is an imperative for all New Zealanders to start learning about. Yeah, I agree. And just to acknowledge again that for us Pākehā, these are, these are often new stories, but it's really interesting in the way that the Māori historians talk in those documentaries because they use phrases like, we have a kōrero about this, uh, particularly uh, I think about the story of Rangiafia, which we can explain soon, but... There's a different way of telling that clearly says that through the generations, these stories have been told over and over and over, and that history has been kept for Māori in a way that it hasn't for us Pākehā. You know, often there's um, the sneering observations that oral histories are 
by definition going to be inaccurate because they're going to be they'll be tweaked in the telling. Well, written histories were just as inaccurate when they were written. You know, they were interpretations at the time. You know, a lot of our histories from battlefields in New Zealand were written by officers wanting to put their best spin on events. Um, so I think this is the evolving understanding of our history is important. But the, the, the most important thing is, I think, for us as New Zealanders, certainly those of us with um, roots that go back a reasonable way, have all got a forebear that was probably engaged in one way or another in those campaigns. For me, uh, the one at Wairo in Marlborough was particularly significant because a forebear on my father's side was actually at what was called the Wairo Afray uh, and escaped from Te Rauparahan to Rangihayata. And his account of it, his escape was in the Turnbull Library. Mm. Watching these and reading about it originally caused me to go back and look at my family history as well. On my mother's side, uh, the family that first came over came over on a boat called the Ganges, I think it was. And they lost half their children on the boat as they were coming over. They were promised land in the Waikato, and it was in the 1860s. So they were promised that they would get some of that land that was clearly being uh, taken. They never made it there. He got put in a mental asylum when they landed because who knows why. But that finding out of our history, I think, is causing many of us to then start asking the identity questions and to look back on our own families as well. Which is a brilliant thing to do. Mm. But I think that the position that we ought to come at this is not from one of shame or guilt, mm. in that our forebears were our forebears. We didn't have a hand in that. But what's important is that we do look and acknowledge what's happened, the good, the bad, and the ugly of what happened, which includes, of course, something like a million hectares of confiscated land, some of it's given back, but illegally confiscated land. I think that if we can... If we can see in history what happened, because the consequences of history are still being felt today, particularly in Maori communities. We can empathize with the current situation that Maori communities find themselves in, given that their whole industrial base, their whole wealth base, their whole cultural base was so decimated that yeah, guess what? It's still being felt today. And this is not peculiar to Māori either, by the way. All countries that have had this have had my forebears in Scotland or the southern states of the USA. You know, there's an ongoing resonance from those events. And I think for if we see in the history what was just and what was unjust, the very lens you were talking about earlier, it allows us to observe current circumstances and conflicts in a different way. Yeah, and when we understand that it wasn't that long ago. Uh, and you're right, I think it's worth driving home the point that uh, an area like the Waikato, so Tainui, was a breadbasket. They were doing extremely well in cultivating food, which was feeding Auckland. And they were doing well economically out of that. And uh, then the wars happened, the land was taken, they were pushed south. And there's so many interesting stories around how it all played out. Pushed south, pushed into poverty, and have never come back. Take a place place like Ngāra for instance, which if you live in the Waikato is seen as a bit of poverty. Really, it's a bit of a basket case. 
but it was the powerhouse of the Kingitanga movement. If that had been allowed to flourish, just imagine what Ngaro Wahia would be now if they hadn't been completely pushed out. That stuff's worth remembering. I think the other thing too, Frank, on, on accessing history and in accessing it in a stimulating and exciting way, there's lots of ends to it. You mentioned Narawa here. There's, there's a turret in Narawa here. There's one in Mercer too of the riverboat gunships, armoured gunships. And I think that for students to consider now that the events that were happening here were fascinating on lots of level, that Britain was the superpower of the world at the time with the most advanced technology. It's like the USA of today with this incredible technology and a, an enormous number of soldiers at its height, up to 18,000, turning up here. And then you've got this incredibly agile Māori defence, which f- figures out how to bunker, tunnel, double palisade against shot, artillery fire, etc., and how to, how to deal with that. And the engineering is astonishing. In itself, that's just fascinating stuff. Mm. And so I think that history can be incredibly interesting and doesn't have to come in on pinning someone to the wall, Yes, allow it to unfold. But the stories are there to excite everyone. This is the beauty of visual. Because, of course, I read Vincent's book and I've read other history books now. And you, so you imagine them. Whereas these documentaries, thanks to uh, computer graphics, the camera allows us to visualize it. Now, what I did as I watched them online was I pulled up Google Maps as well so that I could uh, just get a sense of where it is in relation to myself and where I find myself. And then zooming in as well, you can still see some of those trenches on Google Maps. So that visual element is a great layer to just bring the whole thing together. But, I mean, so many of these sites, they're on private land and Mm. inaccessible. As a New Zealander, I'd like to see these sites commemorated in a far more significant way. And I think you could be commercial about this. I mean, to travel the campaign trail takes you through magnificent countryside. So Rangialfia and Oraka and a lot of these significant spots, they're a great motivation for us to see our own country. And in doing so, get a sense of whenua, a sense of land and a sense of the echoes of the past. Mm. Uh, I I think uh, I'd like to see more of it. Yeah, same, same. And for anyone who might deny the importance of that, just imagine what the United States would be like if there wasn't all the stories and all the places you could visit around the American Civil War that feeds into their sense of identity. It's Uh, a huge thing in the States. I haven't done it, but would like to go on the the trail of some of the Civil War locations as mm. well. I think there seems to be... And it's understandable how there's been, a, I think, a Pakia reluctance and suspicion around all of this, given that the history from the time of the treaty to the time after the wars, that everyone was looking to pretty much squash both and then come up with the mythology of this basically harmonious mm. bicultural country where everyone was happy. And everyone was sort of getting along really well. And that was the mythology that carried right through, actually, till the time I was at school, Mm. to be honest. And it wasn't true. It's not true. And nor should it be true because we're born out of conflict. But we've got the opportunity to embrace and understand that through 
truth and reconciliation. Mm. Some of these stories, Rangiafia probably being the most uh, confronting one for me, some of these stories are gut-wrenching. How has it been for you emotionally immersing yourself in the world, that world, and hearing this stuff? Uh, well, it is gut-wrenching. And um, it's... Um, you can't but have this burning sense of injustice and cruelty, really, that the campaigns were about. It's not the good guys, bad guys, but it was it, it, it was a, a determination to oppress and suppress. You mentioned King and Tuck, of course. And um, the only way to do that was the only way to do that, which was to slam it with every bit of power and firepower that you had, and that's what they did, mm. and decimated the communities in the, in the, in the doing, and mm. left us to mop it up. Yeah. So let's, let's tell the story of Rangiafia then, because I think it is one of the most confronting. You've got, uh, you've got the likes of Parihaka back in the day, but I think Rangiafia is one of those stories that just needs to find its way more into New Zealand understanding, to understand some of the pain and the hurt that has been uh, handed down. So rather than me telling it, would you mind... Rangi Alfer was the, you mentioned earlier, the breadbasket of that region. And the Māori leaders at the time were led to believe that if they put their old people and women and children in that area, they would be spared the conflict. And they'd set up enormous, uh, an enormous, uh, elaborate uh, bit of fortification. Stretching <laughs> from Tiaomutu to the Waipa River, 10 kilometres of trenching. Incredible. With yeah, trenching and a remarkable and formidable bit of, of fortressing to the colonial troops and so forth. To their credit, strategically, they knew this was going to be one heck of a campaign. They were able to simply, with the help of some kūpapa, some Māori uh, who were on opposite sides, of which did fight with the imperial troops as well, as part of our history, they said, you know what, we're not going to hit this thing head on. We're going to bypass it when there's a route round the side, which they did. They under swung, the cover of darkness. Under the cover of darkness, swung around the side and hit Rangaofia from behind. Mm. So at that point, the Maori warriors were on their line, ready to do battle well away. And sure enough, the, um, the troops moved in there. Whare was torched. There was women and children hiding in a, a church. Mm. Uh, they was torched. This, this is particularly gutting for me as a minister, as a man of faith, to know that people sheltered in a church and then other people who would have called themselves Christians. And there's the talk about the possibility of Bishop Selwyn being present yes, as it all played yes, out yeah. for them to, well, first get people out and then shoot them as they were coming out, including a 10-year-old boy. And then the others too scared to come out and then they torch the church. I mean, I'm sitting here holding back the tears as I as I think about well, it. Well, they trusted their new faith mm. and they trusted the edifice of that faith, the church. Mm. It was a sanctuary. Uh, it was and it tapu, should have been. And it should have been. So it was a very ugly moment in our history. There's still the pain of that, the mamai for Māori, uh, is still almost as tangible today as it was then. I know it's very strong when we were making that documentary on the, those events, how close to the surface it is. Yeah. Well, I mean, we're talking people who are alive remembering the storytelling of their grandparents who were present at the time. Yeah. So one of your historians in their mentions, I think, is Nana telling stories. 
that's gut wrenching stuff. It's, it is. It's, it's it is still in our living memory. Yeah, and I think that's why the good, the bad, and the ugly needs to be acknowledged by all of us. That way, we can all, with humility and with empathy, deal with each other. I think as we as we move forward. I would imagine that some of that early reporting, some of that stuff in conflict zones has set you up relatively well to deal with some of the emotion of this because it would be very easy to hear these stories, to come to some of these realizations and then to just feel angry. Yeah, there's a good deal of understandable anger uh, around, but there's also a good deal of uh, Pakia resentment about these stories being yeah. told. And I'm not quite sure what that's about. It's like, don't rake over the coals. The past was the past. Come on, let's get on with it. You know, everyone's got a, the same opportunity as anybody else. Come on, step up, get on with it. There's, a, I think, a, a reasonable amount of that you detect in, 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 in some of the comments and things that one reads. And I think that defensiveness and resentment um, is really holding people back from a rich experience that they could be having. They could be perceiving the, the country they live in in a quite different way and I think feel the better for it. Yeah, I think a much richer, deeper, more human, more spiritual way. Definitely. I think that the Māori principles of kaitiakitanga and um, of manakitanga, of care for one another, the environmental principles. A spirituality around the land means that you approach the land differently. The way you exploit the land will be considered differently. It's a whole different perception, even if one doesn't buy into the cosmology. Mm. But those basic principles of care and community and family, I think for the nuclear Pahia world, could we all benefit from that. It's yeah. a great reminder of a lot of stuff we used to have. Yeah, it's very, very true. Very true. You go back to some of the nations that we come from, essentially, and you see more of that embedded in some of those older cultures that, that we come from. Yeah. I don't know when the end of your career is going to be. But how does, it, <laughs> how does it feel to be at this stage in your career and being involved in something that isn't simply telling stories of other places in the world that we need to know about, but now feeding into stories that are deeply part of who we are and can have a significant impact on shaping who we are as a nation? Look, I think a lot of people do that. It, it really excites me on a couple of levels. There's, there's the, the, the documentaries, but... Uh, on a weekly current affairs program, which I'm involved in producing, what I love about it, it takes me back to a bit like a bureau days for me. We've got, you've seen where we are. We're in a, a little villa in Sandringham. Uh, with a great bakery nearby. With a great bakery nearby. <laughs> the doors open. There's usually a couple of dogs. There's a baby. There's comings and goings. Uh, it's It operates on a shoestring. It's authentic. It's real. It's connected in its own special way, and it's not bound by the conventions mm. of corporate television and corporate television current affairs. It's not, thankfully, uh, 
ratings driven in the sense that uh, trying to perceive they'll love this out there. So we're going to do that type of story. So we're able to set our own agenda about what we think is important, what will fly. And some does, some doesn't. But the discourse we've got is online because our, our linear audience is small on Fakata Māori. But the online presence is huge and engaged. So it's really um, stimulating to be part of that and a real honour to actually be contributing. Mm. And it's, in my mind, and I would have discussed this when I sat down with Moana and Hikurangi, I think Te Ao with Moana offers a different type of storytelling because it's steeped in a Māori worldview. And because Moana doesn't come from a journalism background, there's just a different approach, which brings me to the closing question. It's been a real honour having you on. Future of journalism in Aotearoa, New Zealand, as someone who's been involved in it for decades now, has watched it shift and change significantly. What do you imagine for the future? Hmm, that's a tough one. I mean, all of us uh, are seeing this cascading presence of artificial intelligence. You know, you and I, we can write some stuff into a chat bot now and say, turn that into a news story, mm. and it will. And my concern about where we're at now is that, with the exception of the likes of Newsroom and some of the other groups on the side, that misinformation and disinformation is one of our biggest enemies at the moment. And the chance of manipulation of under-resourced newsrooms and a machine that wants to be pumping out information all the time. And that accuracy truth-telling, and reflection are lost in that pace or can be lost in that pace. Look, I'm committed to the idea of what we do. I think we need news. We need current affairs. We need someone bringing to us um, questions and challenges uh, and analysis. So... Yeah, um, on one level, very hopeful, on another, trepidation, but hey, you know, I'm old school. Yeah, and that's life, holding those tensions together is, is life. Yeah. Hey, Cameron, because of the years you've spent telling stories in New Zealand, uh, gracing our screens, bringing us news that we otherwise wouldn't have known about if you hadn't stepped in there, and then the place that you're taking now, and the part that you're playing now in helping us understand our history and uh, current stories as well through Tiao with Moana, shaping our identity as who we are as a nation. I'm deeply honoured that you took time out, so thanks for the conversation. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Rick. Nga mihi nui, Cameron. Thank you for generously taking the time to sit down for this kōrero. Thanks to Radio New Zealand for hosting this series and of course thanks to you for giving some of your precious time to listen. I really do appreciate it. Also a big thanks to Josh Couch, Sam Donkin and Steph So Love It Mal for producing this podcast. If you appreciate this podcast, please give us a five-star rating and share it with someone else who'd like to hear it as well. And remember to follow in your favourite app to catch future episodes. At Media Chaplaincy New Zealand, we really do value our media. And we demonstrate that by offering free, independent and confidential support for media professionals. So if you work in the media industry and you want to chat with someone who gets it, head to mediachaplaincy.nz to arrange a catch-up. The coffee's on us. 